Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. Scott Baker McGarva is regularly described as an encyclopedia of knowledge by his British Columbian peers. Sales rep, guide, instructor, and fly shop veteran, the man seems to know a little about everything when it comes to fishing. It's rare to find a subject that Scott can't provide insight on, so I met him in Vancouver to find out more about his life and his steelhead fishing. In this episode, we talk about the fly line revolution, swinging techniques, fishing eggs, and more. I like to let people know my relationships with my guests, and you were my first ever fly casting lesson. And uh, you've been in my life for a really long time, so let's share you with the rest of the world. Tell me who you are. Awesome. Well, it's very flattering. Um, I mean, I've been a retail. I guess I, the other day I thought, you know, I've been in retail for thirty years. You know, I'm forty eight years old, and I was a more than that. I was sixteen years old. I was tying flies and working a little fly shop in Vancouver, Turner's Fly and Tackle, and taking the bus there. And I used to take the bus to Ruddick's Fly Shop on Thursday evenings because it was the only time that I could get there with enough time to actually get what I needed. Because most shops would close at 5.30. Right. And it was a bus across the city. And there was this kind of funky crowd that would always show up at Ruddick's on Thursday afternoon, Thursday evenings. And BS and tell lies and typical fisherman stuff. But for me, it was just a world of information. And I could just absorb uh, all this information because that's where I was in that point in my life. I was just a giant sponge. And I read everything I could read and I listened and and you know, who is this guy, and who is that guy, and there'd be famous local BC fishermen in there talking, and I knew exactly who they were, and I I didn't have the courage to 
to introduce myself. But after a while and, and enough Thursdays, they start to see you as a regular and they start to treat you as one of their own. And it was kind of a cool deal. And then, of course, uh, after school, it's like, well, I need, I need to get a job. I wasn't thinking university and a degree or a trade or anything. You know, I went fishing, you know, and so I went, started guiding and summers in Alberta and winters in BC and it grew and grew and then... But you're the son of an architect and an engineer. I'm a son of a... Uh, well, actually, I like to say I'm the son of two architects and an engineer because my father's an engineer and a lifelong uh, Calgary resident and uh, retired engineer now and, and part-time guide and always very supportive. And uh, I refer to him as Mike. I was calling him Mike. I don't really call anybody Dad. And then Graham McGarva is my uh, stepfather, who, as I love to say, uh, my mom brought home from university one day, and he never left. (laughs) And uh, he was great, because he had all these cool records, and I was a very impressionable eight-year-old, and uh, and he took me to soccer, or football, footy, uh, true soccer uh, practices, and he knew how to play soccer, whereas my paternal father was a football guy. But football, for a uh, son of starving students, was out of the question, because of equipment and stuff. So, you know, I had these three parental... Uh, influences in my life and uh, all very different but all very important and um, I used to go and visit my dad in the summers in Alberta and and trout fish for a few weeks with him and then I'd come back to BC in the winter and and back and forth and back and forth and so uh, it was a natural progression for me guiding to go to Calgary and start guiding on the Bow River. Oh okay now but who got you into fishing? My paternal father dad Mike. Mike used to come and take me fishing all the time. (laughs) Got it. His grandfather was, uh, uh, my great-grandfather was Austin Spencer, or Spence Spinner, who was kind of a, uh, was a friend of Roderick Haig Brown's, but a little bit older than Haig Brown, uh, and um, he did a lot of the fishing columns and wrote a lot about field and stream sports in Vancouver, and particularly the Capilano River uh, in the late 20s, 30s, and 40s, so and into the 50s as well. Um, he's, there's a couple pools in the Capilano River named after him, Spencer's Pool and uh, Little Spencer's. And that was before they dammed the Capilano River and, and, and pretty much ruined probably what they say is 30 miles of some of the best summer on dry fly fishing that the world ever saw. And typical of that era of, of uh, development and, and damming and everything, a lot of rivers are now gone. But uh, it took Art Lindgren actually dug into the archives and told me more about my great-grandfather's history than, than really my father or anybody had ever told us. So that was really fascinating stuff. And uh, he invented uh, basically the predecessor to the Hague Brown Steelhead B, which was called a whiskey and soda, <laughs> which to dry fly guys, it was a bivisible, but it was a black and white bivisible, and the, and the hackles were mixed through the whole fly. It wasn't a a white hackle in front of a black body or a white hackle in front of a brown body, like a traditional bivisible. And they would skate them and tumble them across the surface, and these summer runs would come up and crush it, and it would be great fun. But the Capilano back then was known for these deep pools. And so you'd see the fish rise up out of the, the pool and take the fly. A lot different than the sort of style of dry fly steelheading that we mostly practice now. And a lot of dead drift, or, or uh, like a popped fly. Mm-hmm. So the stuff you hear about in the Umpqua... Yeah. Uh, and Frank Moore and uh, and later now, you know, uh, Scott uh, Howell and yeah. that, the popping the flies. I mean, popping flies definitely was popularized in there, but popping flies was happening in one way or the other 
for the last 90, not 80, 80, 70, 80 years mm-hmm. um, in, in British Columbia in one form or the other. You know? Yeah, well, so, fly fishing is so much like fashion and the reinvention. Reinvention. Every, I mean, I watch Howl years. Pop Flies, and it's much more aggressive than anything that I'd seen before. But I remember the late Mike Maxwell, you know, the great two-handed right. pioneer in, in the Bulkley, that his way he fished his Bulkley stone was to dead drift it, pop it twice, dead drift it, pop it twice. And keep his rod vertical, and when the fish took, he would drop his rod and just start reeling until the fish had the fly pulled into the scissors. Mm-hmm. And and in Mike's typical fashion, he that was how it was done. There was no um, other. There's other, no yeah, other way. Yeah, he was an Englishman, and it was this is how it's done, and, and there's no other way. And um, but you know that that stuck in my mind. And so to find out the stories about your past. You know, I, and I grew up as a little kid in the Capilano fishing Spencer's pool with float gear and bobbers and spoons and bait and later flies and and at that time I had no idea where I was what I was doing. It's the same stream my dad grew up on fishing. It was later that I realized the history. And so now if I go for a stroll in the Capilano, it's a whole different experience than when I was a twenty-year-old whippersnapper trying to catch every steelhead I could. And yeah, well, let's talk so, about that. So you went. I mean, I I interrupted you. It's my fault. But you. <laughs> were on the Bow River fishing, and then were you living there part-time, and you'd part back to BC, yeah. and then you'd fish here. Yeah, so... So that's why, because you're a really well-rounded angler. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so, my, so my dad, my dad was there, and I would go visit him, and I'd go fishing on my own, and he'd drop me off at the river all day, and he'd go to work, and then he'd pick me up, and I, I would fish the bow all day from shore, and then on weekends, we'd do overnight camp floats in his little boat, and he didn't have a fancy drift boat or anything. You know, the Bow River was... It's a fairly, in grand schemes of trout fisheries with boating in western uh, North America, the bow is much younger than, say, the bighorn in Montana or the Yellowstone or those. I mean, uh, it's really developed into something, but when I first went there, it was still pretty, um, it it was an infancy as far as how they did a lot of things. Um, We mostly used John boats because the wind didn't catch them. There was no Mackenzie boats yet. Um, my dad just had a car topper that we would row down the river, and right. it was great fishing. It still is great fishing, but back then it was spectacular, and there was nobody fishing really per se to to what it is now. And uh, after a few years of doing that in the summer, I figured I had it pretty dialed in on how to throw streamers at the bank and then fish dry flies in the uh, on hatches and rising fish. And so I went there right out of high school at like uh, 18, and I was going to be a fishing guide, and I... Uh, I had written letters, and I got my foot in the door with uh, Rick Harding, who was uh, a, a well-known guide who was working with Country Pleasures, which was sort of the, the preeminent shop in the day there, and, and still is. And and I went to work for Rick, but he only had part-time work, so I struck up a deal to work with this other guy in another shop across town. Unbeknownst to me, there was some significant politics between those shops. There's, wait, there's politics in the fly fishing <laughs> There's politics. Fucking politics. So I, I got there and I, I kind of announced that to Rick that I was going to work, uh, that that's fine on part-time work. I'm going to work with this other guy too. And he said, oh, you know, well, that won't be, that won't be good. Um, uh, you know, how about I can probably get you a part-time job at Country Pleasures. And at the time as a young guy, you know, I felt like a lot of young guys in stuffy fly shops, these don't feel welcome and they always felt like they're asking too many questions. And I made some foot-and-mouth comment about Country Pleasures, which is classic uh, for me at the time, and uh, and even now. <laughs> I'm still good at putting my foot in my mouth. And he uh, and said, you know, I won't work for those assholes. And 
and boom, it was all over. Yeah, before it even started. Before it even started. Before it even got it a day, he was like, wow, those assholes are my friends, and blah, blah, blah. And it was a lesson I learned. And but, here's your ticket back to BC. Well, almost. <laughs> but then I, I went, you know, I went to a, uh, I went to a Gary Borger presentation. Right. Uh, that had been thrown by the local fly fishing club. And when I was there, I met this big burly guy with a big beard named Barry White. And Barry White was Barry White. a legend as well. He was part of the original half a dozen guys that first guided there in the Bull River Company way back in the late 70s. And Barry was known for his cowboy hat and his big, and his big jolly laugh and his big camp floats and his big sandwiches and his big drift boat. Right. And he had a big white lav rope drift boat. And it was one of the first ones. And it'd be like a sail coming down the river when you'd see it. And then he bought a whole bunch more drift boats, and he loved to run all of them on the same float. So it looked like the Armada coming. And he took me under his wing, and, and he, he got me in, and he showed me, you know, the proper ways of, of rowing the boat and how far to keep it from the bank. He taught me a lot. He was, he was awesome. And, uh, but, you know, in, in the wide world, how everything was going, after a couple seasons, I had earned my stripes, and, um, things had changed, and, um, there was more work to be had working with uh, Country Pleasures and Rick Harding, and so I earned back my spot mm-hmm. with Country Pleasures and Rick Harding, and I did that for a couple more years. And, and I would always spend my winters back in, in Vancouver. Right. And uh, my mom was here, and steelhead fishing all winter. I bought a drift boat right away and bring it back to the, brought it back to the coast and drifted every river it was possible and, and you know started catching an awful lot of steelhead. Primarily on gear because it was winter time, and there in a lot of rivers it's hard to catch them on on flies. So we we fished them in the traditional BC sense of a center pin rod and an old hardy reel and a, and a bobber, and and we caught the snot out of them. I mean, we were catching hundreds and hundreds of steelhead a winter, and it was a huge learning curve on steelhead behavior mm. and uh, and where they live. And nothing beats catching a lot of fish to gain experience. And, I don't think anybody will argue with that. But when you're catching 25 a day, you're learning an awful lot about steelhead. Whoa. You know, in the Grand Vancouver Island back then, you know, it wasn't uncommon to really, on a high water period, to have 20 to 30 fish in the boat with a couple of rods gear fishing. And so, huge learning curve there. And, um, and I would work in a, I worked in the ski business for a while in the winter and did odd jobs and, until, uh, about 1991 when, uh, I had also enjoyed a brief job uh, career working in Mexico doing on, what? on the Baja, doing what everybody does now as cool kids now. I was doing that in 92. So chasing bleh, roosters, you mean? Chasing roosters on the beach, right. except we used boats to do it. We didn't have ATVs, and we didn't have uh, side-by-sides to run up and down the beach. We just we would just troll the surf line out of Pangas um, with uh, teasers out and bait and switch them. And that was sort of the only way we could really get them. And occasionally you'd get into a bait ball and you could free cast to them. Um, offshore, f- fishing tide lines for dorados and sails and the occasional striped marlin and, and all that stuff. And it was an awesome, awesome experience. Did I make any money? No. I had, I had an amazing tan. Uh, the cost, the cost to operate down there is pretty high. And the guy I worked with, you know, you know, he, he, he's putting us up and everything. And he was definitely before his time, this guy. He was a smart guy, but, a little bit of a Rob Peter to pay Paul type with his money, and it didn't last. But in the seven to nine months that I was down there, all the time, it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then I did it a bit more off and on for another year or so, and then I realized that, you know, I'm not going to pay my bills with this anymore. No. And so I, I had, 
that was a particularly uh, a shitty ski season. So the ski season job hadn't panned out, and uh, I went and applied at a fishing tackle store that I used to frequent. Um, in Vancouver? In, in, in Richmond, yeah. Barry's, Barry's? Bait, Barry's Bait and Tackle. Okay. I'd gone in there and thrown my resume in there, and about four months later, there had been a... a a really sad death of a guy in Vancouver. It was a really liked young man who worked at all the shops. He taught lessons. He taught fly tying. His name was Sean Bordeaux, and he was a great guy, and he passed away in a horrible accident fishing. And then there was a shift of people who were working like musical chairs. Um, this guy that worked at Barry's went to work at Ruddick's. The guy that worked at Ruddick's was Kelly Davidson. His He felt his value wasn't being appreciated. He left to go to sea run it was kind of a funny little uh, musical chairs dance and here i am working at at you know barry's bait and tackle which was arguably probably the biggest tackle shop in western canada back then and you know 10 12 years of retail followed and fishing and just you talk about a knowledge sponge place to go you know um, the one thing about retail is that people forget you're like a psychiatrist People love to come in and tell you everything about their experience, in this case, fishing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and you learn, you know, a guy would buy some tackle and you'd look at it with some flies he's buying and you look at the time of year and go, where the hell are you going with that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I've got this little secret creek, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And you're like, uh-huh. Boom, I go there the next week. Oh, and, no. And, 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 and hopefully not see him. People and, must have loved you. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would do it from my own personal knowledge. I wouldn't tell anybody. I, I would try to keep it on that. And then in later years in Barry's, I mean, we had a really, really popular uh, phone-in hotline fishing report that was on the Talking Yellow Pages, which was before the Internet. What, you, what are Yellow Pages? Yeah, yeah before, before the Internet, you'd phone in a number, and then you'd punch in a four-digit code, and it would be, say, movie times, it would be the tides, the weather. Well, Barry's Bait had a, a fishing report. Yeah. It was five minutes of... Me on the phone, just rattling off everything that was going on at that time. Am I dating myself that I remember days of fishing reports? Yeah, yeah. It's well, oh, this God. would have been, you not know, not from berries, just other. Shops. Just well, just in general, and and while people tried to make money on it, there was nine hundred numbers to make uh, to get <laughs> fishing reports, and but berries was free, and it was really important to emphasize that it saved the retailer just a shit ton of time mm-hmm. on the phone. Because people wouldn't call up and say what's hot, what's not. They would listen to the fishing report. And if you kept it updated, particularly for regulations and for openings and closings of short-term fisheries, which you know, with salmon we had a lot of, it was great. And uh, it, it was four hundred to 500,000 calls a year. Wow. So you do the math on how many times a shop phone's ringing. Now, granted, guys call it twice a week, so your total number of people might be different. But that volume of calls was pretty hard to beat. And we really turned it into a juggernaut for a fishing report. And I met many people over the years that that knew me by my voice that had never set foot in Barry's Bait because they lived on the other side of town mm-hmm. and they, they frequented other shops. But they benefited from it. Right. You know. So when did you start guiding then? Did you guide out of Barry's? Um, no, we fished a ton out of Barry's. So I guided in the bow for those years, a bunch of years, and then the Mexican thing. But in BC, when and did then you start in BC, um, right before I worked at at Barry's, I was guiding a Vancouver Island a bit for David Murphy. Oh, that's for that's right. yeah, a little bit of that. salmon and steelhead guiding. Did that just a little bit, and then the Barry's job was less guiding and a heck of a lot more fishing. Now I had an income that was a good income, and when I got days off, I went fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, I you know, I killed one marriage really good with that one, and go fishing and learn, 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 
and I'd travel. I went to Christmas Island. I could afford to. Um, our boss, Ivan Berry, uh, used to take us to Rivers Inlet every summer for, nice. you know, a week, for a week of, of heavy hitter salmon fishing. And so I learned a lot about how to cut plug from a guy who had been doing it his whole life. And, uh, and that continued. And then when I went on to my own store, uh, in early 2003, um, we pretty much got into guiding out of the store right away just because we were new and we were just trying to do everything we could to build our brand. So what made you decide I'm going to quit berries and I'm going to start my own bloody tackle oh. shop in one of the most expensive rental areas of Vancouver? You know, it. I think it was typical of anybody who works in a field for a while that eventually you just want to call your own shots. You know, the berries people, they're like family to me. They are awesome. And uh, they paid me well. And there was it wasn't without its wrinkles because you're dealing with a family-run business that runs things like family and they don't always understand other idiosyncrasies of business. And as I got older and more mature and I learned more and I made it my business to learn as much as I could, you know, I felt that they weren't taking advantage of things as much. And I was becoming almost an entirely uh, uh, fly-fishing-driven guy and I liked it, but I still gear fished enough, and I just started feeling that I had to have my own my own gig. And I did look at buying a small shop in Vancouver, Turner's, for a while. And um, you know, I always remember looking at the books, thinking, "Well, there's no money in this." And she only made like thirty grand a year or something. And I was like, "Wow." Well, of course, you know, all the off the book money, teaching schools, all that stuff. And it was a little store, and so I hummed and hawed, and, and Ruddick's Fly Shop was for sale back then. You know, they're long gone now, and I looked at that, and that was, I learned about balance sheets and all the other stuff. And, you know, but they were an, a company had been around for a long time, mm-hmm. and they had a great name, and they were trying to sell their name. And I recognized quickly that it just, I couldn't finance buying their name. I was much better off to go my own. So I looked at doing it myself, and I looked at various business partners that, had some interest in it and hummed and hawed. And then a guy I fished with quite a bit who who had a, a couple of businesses he had started recently quite successfully, he expressed an interest. And it seemed like he was a good fit because I knew the business and he knew how to start a business mm-hmm. and build out a business and fixturing and bank loaning. And two of us doing it was much better than the bank. And so I think it started on uh, the right foot. But unfortunately, as it went on, it, you know, it, it it started to get more and more difficult and became apparent that, you know, his philosophy, he was very much a my way or the highway kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And and his philosophy of how to run a business, it didn't matter what the market could bear. didn't matter what other people were doing with pricing. He, he felt that he could do it differently and people would just suck it up. And, uh, and I, of course, had come from being in the business. And I'm saying, no, you know, you can't be a new store and be 20, even... 20 cents more expensive on a on a, but, a bread and butter type of item you know and we had a very nice store it was, you knew beautiful. It was beautiful so we we took it to another level in fixturing this wasn't linoleum and 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 fluorescent lighting it was track lighting and carpeting and nice wood and and a television and a seating area for the non-fishers to sit and relax while their husbands or wives or whoever else fished and it was a concept that nobody had ever seen in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And it gave people a sense of being kind of expensive and hoity-toity. So the worst thing you could do was be expensive. Yeah. And and as we got our feet firmly planted uh, and started to make some money and we bought better, you know, we could make the margin we needed without being overpriced, and that was my feeling. And uh, I partnered 
you know, uh, we just, like I said, we didn't see eye to eye, and it eventually went into a horrible mess, and it was all very disappointing, but it was a big lesson. Mm -hmm. And um, out of that, you know, I basically felt that I had to get out of town and, and, and get my head straight. I mean, I, that was my lifelong dream to have that. And I essentially got, felt like I got screwed by somebody who didn't really divulge the bigger picture of stuff on partnerships and how businesses run. And I was naive. I wanted to make it work. No matter what, I wanted to make it work. And so I overlooked things that in the, in the end I regretted. So from that, I, well, what do I know best? Fishing. I'll just go back to guiding. And, and I went back to guiding, uh, you know, right away. And uh, actually, first, it should back up. First thing I did is I helped one of my employees start his own, start his own store. Yeah. I wrote all his owners. I helped him do his floor plan layout, helped him build half the place, uh, me and another guy, and, uh, and got him up and running. Because uh, to me, it was a sense of pride that my shop kind of lived on into Jason's shop. And it looks very similar. Oh, very it's similar, the yeah. same feel. Yeah. Jason used to work for you. Jason worked for me. Well, some of the fixtures are there. I mean, yeah. he bought the fixtures off. You know, my partner pushed my partner pushed a very successful business into receivership so that he could be right. You know, that's the best way to put at it. And uh, and so Jason was able to buy the the fixtures for a song, which was funny in itself and uh, and we built a store around them and it's awesome and to this day it's a great store in Vancouver and that's Pacific, Pacific Angler Pacific Angler yeah no, no. Proud. every time I go in there I have a sense of pride that, that this wouldn't be there unless I started it and um, or started the momentum of having a shop you know that design and but what was ironic is that Jay uh, Tonelli starts Pacific Angler I went and took Jay Tonelli's old head guide job or head guide job but guide job at Hanina Lodge up in Prince Rupert for yeah. a summer, and I went up there and whaled on Chinook salmon, and we fly fished for cohos in open water, and and it was a great season, and it was it was very enlightening, and got back on my feet financially, and it, and uh, uh, it only cost me a girlfriend that summer. And so when I came back from it, I uh, I didn't want to go back to uh, such a, a desolate place. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go somewhere where there's some people, and there was a bit more of a lifestyle attached so i went to langara island which in the queen charlotte's or Haida Gwaii, which you know four lodges on a small island it was almost like going to college so many people and fun and parties and fantastic fishing but also you know you could live a little i remember all yeah, that happening yeah. and i remember thinking oh my god i have no idea what's going to happen to where, where are you going to go yeah. and then you you literally disappeared mm-hmm. you went to the island there's no social media. We never heard from you. Yeah. And I just thought you were right off. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, ta-da! You, I mean, you came bouncing back. So what? Well, I, I remember. I mean, it's funny about social media. I remember, you know, I went, came back. Um, uh, then that winter, I lived in Yaletown. I had an apartment in Yaletown in Vancouver, and I still live there. The next year, I went to Langara and, uh, for the summer, and it was great. The next year, I went back to Langara. And in the winter months, we were kicking around doing various odd jobs, but the guiding, you know, from May till September was pretty good. And then I started getting, in 2008, I went to guide on the Bulkley in the fall. Mm-hmm. So now I was guiding from, you know, May till November. And I could pretty much afford to kick around all winter long, go fishing and skiing all winter long. And I moved back to Whistler, or moved to Whistler rather, and I decided I needed to do something other than fish. And I got back into skiing in a big way, and then guiding in the winter season, here and there. Um, then we started guiding in the Queen Charlotte's in the winter season. And so slowly, uh, year-round guiding evolved out of it with nice little breaks in between. 
and it was great. I mean, it worked out well. I, I laughed. I had more money in the bank account with that lifestyle than I ever did having a, a pretty busy store in the city because, you know, the that cost... actually doesn't surprise me. No, the cost of living in the city, particularly Vancouver, is horrific. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I kind of escaped to, to Whistler and uh, got away from it all. Now I just completed five seasons working at BC West for Danica, yeah, and it was awesome. You know, but again, more people, mm-hmm. very small business. Uh, of course, um, well, you know where I well because you were there too, and uh, and that was great. But uh, when my partner Stephanie and I uh, found out we were having a baby, at yeah, at yeah. like forty six <laughs> years old, you're going to be a dad. I didn't like, want to say it. I had holy, to stop holy there. shit! Well, you know, and I never put it out of my mind, but I was like, well, I guess I'm having a kid, and and. And Steph is a little bit younger than me, just a little bit. <laughs> and and it went, wow, you know, you're having a kid. Hmm. Well, Scott, you can't be a fishing guide forever, you no. know. And so I've morphed kind of away from the full year on guiding to just part-time here and there. And and I, I got into the fishing manufacturer's representative thing, you know. And uh, before, um, before I pick your brain about fishing, mm-hmm. do you want to just tell me and, and let people know what it is that you're repping these days? And so I'm going to be doing Winston and Able Reels and uh, it looks like Lampson Waterworks and then a few uh, smaller brands uh, that are just sort of fleshing themselves out right now. And then I'm also working as an associate rep uh, with Sims and uh, Sitka Hunting Gear. I remember you being a bit of a history buff. And uh, you yeah. are actually the only... I've attended a workshop or two these days, whether it be that I'm a visitor or I'm um, a, a co-instructor. I've never seen anybody dive into the history aspect as much as you did in your mm-hmm. courses. So you've seen a lot of changes happening, and I just want to go over a little bit of technical stuff with you. I don't usually mm-hmm. do a lot of technical chat, but you're a really great person to to speak about this stuff with. So... Bamboo mm-hmm. was replaced by glass, now mm-hmm. we're in graphite, et cetera, et cetera. I don't need to lay out the timeline. Yeah. But when you first started using a double hand rod, what kind of line were you using? Double taper 10. Okay, gross. Oh, horrible. Yeah. A double taper 10. Uh, I remember my first spay rod I bought was a 14 foot 10 weight sage rod. Brownie? Brownie. It was a big rod. They made. They made. Uh, they didn't make that many rods back then. They made a 14-foot 10-weight. Uh, the 9140 was, uh, I think, just around the same time. 7136, those two. But there's a whole other story about them. But I bought this 14-foot 10-weight. And like all early spay rods, the thing was a crane. Mm-hmm. However, we didn't know any different. So, you know, I picked it up. And I remember, okay, I went and got a double taper 10 line for it. And I had a big, I had a big Able uh, number 4 Real from my saltwater days in the Baja. This would have been in the very early 90s. And um, so I had a good enough reel to load it up on. And I went to the river and and flailed and was so frustrated. Because by that time I had been a certified fly casting instructor. I could cast my whole fly line blindfolded left hand and all that stuff. And I thought that, oh, the space stuff will be a piece of cake. Mm-hmm. God, no. I flailed horribly for... A while, you know, and what I always say about the early spare rod design is that the spare rod designers and the fly line designers, they needed to get together more, and they weren't. 
And as you'll, as you find looking at history, like the early Skagit lines, all that stuff was from guys cutting and splicing. Right. And making their own. And so, um, if you didn't have that luxury of that technology or people who were doing that in your circle, you were forced to buy the factory available stuff. And in being in a retail shop, I would just get what was out there, mm-hmm. which at the beginning was a double taper 10 or a double taper 11 or whatever from a uh, scientific angler. And then later, uh, scientific angler started making, uh, more weight forward type lines, but they were like 75 foot weight forwards. Mm-hmm. And they were tapers that, uh, well, part of it came from uh, the late Bob Taylor, who was a well-known uh, totem fly fisher who had developed a, he called it the super single salmon taper, SSS taper, um, but basically a weight-forward design. And um, and then a couple of years later, finally along came the wind cutter. Which is when I entered. Yeah, it. which is when, you know, and, 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 and Jim Vincent and the wind cutter, and the wind cutter apparently was a design that was pretty common amongst the hardcore uh, line splicers uh, around the Pacific Northwest. Um, Jim got a hold of it and, and did his his refinements to it, but he mass produced it. Right. And then it was available to the mass public, you know, and that changed everything. And you know, I remember I sold that fourteen foot ten weight. I couldn't make it work. And then I got a ninety one forty mm-hmm. and a seventy one thirty six. Oh, okay. And uh, I built the seventy one thirty six because I had an old Hardy Perfect. I had a long foot, and you had to build it to. You had to make the saddle longer uh, and went to the dean with, you know, for the first time in, what, 92 or 3 with the spare rod and had a little bit better idea to do. But I always remember that my wind cutter for my 9 weight uh, was the only line I had that was for tips. For the 7 weight, I had a, a, a floating, at that time, it was a triangle taper. was the only salmon, weight forward salmon line you could get for dry fly fishing. Well, I broke my 9140 two days into the trip. Oh, no. And I didn't know what to do. And we were fishing sink tips. The river was high, but there was lots of fish around. And I was like, what am I going to do? Well, in the old days, wind cutters came with two tips. Mm-hmm. And the idea was is you could take them both off and put on your sink tip onto the belly for windy conditions or very big flies, I think is what Vincent's little booklet said. Two tips as in the cheater, you mean? Well, it kind of like that. Yeah, it came with a 55-foot, 54-foot line with a 15, 15-foot front tip and then a 10-foot Next piece. And then the remaining portion was, you know, in the 30-foot range. And um, But what you were really doing there was you were taking off the two tips and making a Skagit line because now it was only a 30-foot belly. And because you took off those two tips, and in particular that 10-foot tip, and only put on a 15-foot sink tip, you've lost 100, 120 grains or something. So now it went from working on my 9-weight, which I broke, to working on my 7-weight. So I put it on my 7-weight. before, because when I got into the wind cutters, they were one line. Well, they used to sell both ways. But most people people wouldn't buy a a pre-cut wind cutter because it came with a wallet and three tips, which you already probably had. Mm -hmm. So you would just buy a full-length wind cutter and cut it back yourself once. This double-cut stuff... You know, so I kind of stumbled upon a Skagit line. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, this is, you know, early 90s. And went out casting it. And at that time, you know, the great Jerry Wintle was on the Dean all the time. And he was left-handed. And he threw a double taper, but left-handed. And watching him cast, it wasn't the most pretty cast, but he got it out there. But being left-handed, most of the accessible lower Dean is right bank. Mm-hmm. 
So he'd have to gack-handed cast all his casts. And that's what he'd do. And so I'm watching him, because I couldn't... I was still stumbling with how to cast. And so I tried to mimic what he was doing, but now I'm right-handed. So I went across the river in a little rowboat, started trying to gack-hand cast to cast like Jerry was. And it had that epiphany moment where I realized my rod was going too far back over my right shoulder. Gack-handed, your shoulder stopped the rod. Mm-hmm. You got a big D-loop, and then it was very hard to go too far forward because you'd end up bending over. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, I was flinging the line across the river with the Skagit head. So for people who can't see what the actions you're making right now, <laughs> what you're trying to demonstrate <laughs> is that your stroke length was was forced to be shorter. Forced to be shorter. And therefore, you were able to develop a proper load. Really, exactly, yeah. What it comes and to. I wasn't over, you know, I wasn't basically um, throwing the rod too far back. And, and by coming, you're going over your right shoulder now, your shoulder acts as a block yeah. so that your D-loop can form. Whereas right-handed, I'd let my rod go too far down and get too much line stick. And, mm-hmm. and all these things that are now real elementary things in spay teach, teaching spay casting. But back then, there was nothing. you know. And, and so I stumbled upon it. Next thing you know, I'm flinging it. Well, then I go back to the right bank. I can't duplicate it right-handed. So I start casting left-handed gack handed oh, Because the only way I could duplicate it and it took me a while to figure out, but that was my best cast for a couple years till I really started to figure out what was going on. Right. And then lines started to improve. Then I got my 9140 fixed, and I got a little heavier line, and you know, and then it just morphed and morphed and morphed and morphed. And and then many many years later, when I first started guiding on the Dean and started catching those enormous Chinooks mm-hmm. or spring salmon, and having to fish this heavy gear, and these things just steal your fly line all the time. <laughs> That suddenly, I, here I am looking for the, the meanest spare rod I could find, and I'm just wishing that I should phone Mario Gavorchian and, and get, <laughs> get that 14-foot 10-weight back, because that thing would teach him a lesson. It really would, yeah. And I now would put on a, a heavy 750-grain you know, grain Skagit line on it, and I would, I'm sure I could make it work. And I always have that thing. I wonder where that rod is now. You know, it's it, it's in a closet somewhere. I'm sure. Like all those old big rods. Oh, yeah. You know, gaining gust. And, you know, not many guys get excited. But it's just interesting, the progression of rods. You know, and now I fish for Chinooks with a 13.5-foot uh, 8-weight. You know, I've just learned how to fish for them differently. And, and uh, you know, but, you know, interesting as the as the spay world changed. And, of course, now, you know, spay lines, really since about 2005, mm-hmm. they finally caught up to rod design, right? And the 9140, the rods got to be getting a little faster and stiffer and, and um and now I, th- I now I think the the rod reel market is so dialed in. I mean, you can go online and and pick out the best line for your rod. Everybody has dialed in everything. I don't really know where they could go. I mean, the trout spay stuff is going off because I think it gets people a chance to practice their spay casting while trout fishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when I go coronamid fishing in the lake. You're not, are you? No, but when I do, no, I don't, no, I don't use a spay rod. Okay. I don't use a spay rod, but every cast with my single hand, nine and a half foot, five weight is a spay cast. Oh, God, I do it when I'm fishing for bass. I do it when I'm saltwater fishing. Yeah. Or I snap tea and pick it up and roll cast and fire. I don't. Big time. I barely false cast. Trout fishing going down river in a drift boat? Yeah. Brilliant. That's all you're doing, right? Bang, bang. That's bang, all I'm doing. Yeah. Snake rolls so, and snap teas. Yeah. But let's talk about the transition, though. Mm-hmm. So I remember going from a longer line into the Skagit line. Mm-hmm. I mean, when the Skagit line came out, oh my God, the world but then, have you noticed that there's been a transition now? Now, now I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and back up a little bit. In the Great Lake region and, and over further yeah. east from here, the Skagit line, is a, it came after yeah. us, let's be honest. Yeah, right? yeah. It came a little bit later. So I, I can't speak for them over there. 
But here, I've really noticed that a lot of the guys on spay pages mm-hmm. and on the forums, they start to, they're starting to really, and self-included, I'm mm-hmm. not going to deny it, deny mm-hmm. it. Um, they're starting to turn away from the Skagit lines mm-hmm. and go back to the longer lines. Yeah. What do you think is happening here with this transition? I, I think it's learning curve. I think that, by and large, most people are better. They all learned. I mean, there are people that thought that Skagit line should be outlawed because it was too easy for newbies to learn how to cast, which is kind of a shame. I mean, why would you want to you know, slow somebody's learning curve? However, yeah, if you learned on a double taper and it took you years to learn and all of a sudden... Some new kid, I can teach a guy to cast 70 feet with a Skagit line in probably less than a couple hours. That's our job on the That's team. our job. And, and you know, the guy's a hero and he's catching fish because, let's face it, fish aren't always the smartest. I mean, you just got to put your fly in front of them. Mm-hmm. And and he catches fish and he's great and he's a hero and he goes on the Internet and says, look at all my big fish pictures. And, 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 and there are people who resent that, mm-hmm. without a doubt, and make fun of it. And that's like all sports, just different cliquey groups. But I think now, as people have developed uh, more skills and a better sense of feel, that they are now gravitating back and realizing that Skagit lines have some problems. They don't they fly like a piece of rope. They have a lot of drag in the water. Um, you've got to strip in a lot of line to cast them all the time, which might not be necessary if you're using a light tip and a small fly. And so the idea of having to manage 20 or 25 strips of line in your hand for every cast starts to get old Mm -hmm. and if you can have like a you know fall favorite next cast 55 which ironically same length an old wind cutter and a or a or for a delta delta space they're all 55 feet Mm -hmm. um the next cast of course has been tweaked a bit um and and barely stripping any line you know strip in three strips to the back of your head and throw it and it's effortless and it's nice and you've gotten better um that people will We'll go there, and I agree. I mean, all Scandi lines are just so nice to cast, right? Whereas Skagit's have always been clunky. Mm-hmm. And even with the improvements in, in the original Skagit lines to the compact Skagit Airflow to the Skagit Max now, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're all designed to fly a little better and, and land a little nicer and have some presentation, whereas the first ones were just a chunk of 12 weight belly with loop, looped to both ends, and they just flew like shite, but at least they delivered what you couldn't deliver before. Right. Let's and, talk a little bit about yeah. clunky. I'm sorry to cut you yeah. off, but a little bit about clunky. So, because I do spend so much time in New Zealand, mm-hmm. I've really gained an appreciation for how sensitive fish are. Oh, yeah. Um, sneaking up on them, all that yeah. stuff. Presentation, yeah. um, how much noise we make, our, the, our profiles with the sun. Yeah. And in doing all the reading I've been doing and, and listening to the guys from you know the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s and how they would fish with their single hand rods mm-hmm. and how they were so cautious with their presentation i look at a lot of anglers today and everything is extremely clunky and people wait out as if the fish don't don't mm-hmm. notice that they're there and they're smashing lines down on mm-hmm. the water or they don't like the way their cast lines up so they're cast again casting again yeah. and i'm seeing a lot of that or even even with the television series yeah. oh my god trying to do a television show with steelhead and salmon um the freaking drone oh yeah i mean of course it has an impact on the fish yeah, well, yeah, yeah. so w- do you think that's something that started to shouldn't that make our fishing less efficient or less yeah, productive yeah I, I i i think that you know you're right the trout fishing applications of stuff you know way different than you know in steelhead circles and salmon circles you know you just wait out and fling it and and 
the the snap tee, you know, um, the the peri poke. I remember guys getting all upset about people peri poking because they didn't like the way you would dump the line and then yeah. pick it up again. They thought it was disturbing the fish, yeah. even though common sense would say <laughs> you already fished that spot. 30 feet upstream, right. you know, but people didn't like it. And, and there'd be guys that, what do you do that for? You should just single spay and make it cleaner. Yeah, you might do that, but, you know, that's a learning curve. And and not everybody can do that right off the bat. And the peri poke really helped people line their lines up and made it work. But guys don't like the disturbance. Snap tees, guys don't like the disturbance. And, and we never pay as much attention to it until it becomes an issue. In steelhead fishing, it's rare, but in summer run fishing, up in the Bulkley Maurice, clear water and spookier fish, yes, it makes a difference. Um, but trout fishing, like you said, in New Zealand, I mean, I learned that in the Bow River, mm-hmm. crawling around our hands and knees in the willows, and like borrow an arrow, bow and arrow casting mm-hmm. with your three weight, 30 feet, to a, a 24-inch brown that's three feet off the shore in six inches of water. Right. You had to be... Widely, but there's often steelhead three feet offshore. Yeah, absolutely, is it just that the brown trout's feeding actively? I, I think yeah, and I think they're a little bit more. I mean, I've seen some steelhead be pretty wily, but I think the trout's in a different world as far as all this things going on. I mean, trout learn, and uh, you know, steelhead live close to shore, and that's the same problem we have guiding all the time. Tell people don't, don't wait we, out so do, far. Don't wait out. Cast your leader first. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly at the head of the run, just flip it out there, you know, and they always look at you like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you turn your back on them, they start waiting out there. But that's just human nature of grass is greener on the other side and everything else. But I I think that, I think people are becoming a bit more conscious of, of their, their, their approach to the casting, what they can get away with. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were, we're talking earlier about big fly, little fly. Right. You know, now guys are like, easy on that. I want to talk about that. Yeah. And then guys are, you know, I remember up in the Bulkley one year, this one guy in, in, in September going on about all the fish he jabbed. I was like, oh, God, what were you using? Oh, 15-foot type 6 and a string leech. And he was going into what we called the Barrett dry fly flats, where the fish were all in pretty nice, slow-moving water, and they were very aggressive to dry flies and floating line. And he was going through there with a sink tip and, and jabbing all these fish. And he had all the old-timers upset that fish there who were going, why are you using that gear now? You can use that gear all winter long, and when the water gets cold, you mm-hmm. probably have to. Now's the time to catch them on the surface and on dry flies and floating lines, and, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Right, and, and, and we should explain. So winter-run steelhead enter in the winter months, and their bodies are basically ready to spawn. They enter yeah. mature. So yeah. they, and the water's super cold. <laughs> the water's cold, their metabolisms are slowed down, mm-hmm. they're tired, they're not in the system for very long. They're there to spawn and get out. Yeah. Whereas the summer run fish enters in an immature state. They aren't ready to spawn yet. They're a lot troutier. Um, they're a lot more prone to taking dry flies. Mm-hmm. Everything, their metabolism is yeah. sped up. The water is warmer. Yeah. And that's why you don't need to go at them with such heavy gear. Yeah. So are the people who are using winter steelhead gear on summer run fish actually catching more fish? I know Bob Hooten says we're so mm. efficient that we're catching more fish and it's giving us the illusion that there's more fish out there than there are. Oh, I, and I would totally agree with that. I agree I, with that as well. I, I, I would say that yes, yes and no. I mean, the complaint I had about this one person is that he, he was more interested in just catching a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And he kind of thumbed his nose up at the guys complaining that, you know, they're like, why don't you go down and fish the heavy water with that stuff? Right. Where you'll still catch fish and you won't be ruining our water and hooking all the fish we're working over. And, you know, 
it was just a difference of opinion. You know, right. both are fly fishing. Nobody's breaking the law. Mm-hmm. It it really is about about uh, your approach and, and your personal opinion. But it was enough to make a point. And and that goes to like when we're guiding, you know, particularly in the bulk league because it's a nice clear river. And I get a guy who's never really fished a lot, um, uh, or spay cast a lot. I'm not giving him a big fly in a sink tip. I'm giving him a floating line, maybe a poly leader. But uh, generally, just a floating line, long leader, and just a little fishy wet fly, like a Lady Caroline or a burlap, or it's just some little drab thing. And I tell him, throw it out there, mend it, swing it, step down three times, do it again. That's what you're doing all day. And he doesn't know any different. So he doesn't question you or second guess you. He just does it. End of the day, Mark, how many fish you have? Shit, I rose six fish, jab four, landed three. Not bad for a rookie. Go back to camp. He's he's over the moon about his day. Go to camp, see the other guys. How was your days? Every single person. Oh, I hooked four, I landed three, or I got five. Nobody really zapped them all. Right. You know, or, and I can attest to that yeah. because I was using leeches on the Bulkley a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And you said, put on the Lady Caroline. And mm-hmm. I did, and it was lights out. Yeah, it, it just... Well, two things happen. If you're down in the fish's window, like mm-hmm. right in their face, that... Obviously, a fish is going to bite at stuff. But fishing over the surface, where a fish is looking up in a much bigger field of view, you're covering water much faster with a, a fly that's in the top third of the water that's tickling their noses. And you, you typically, you can almost be fishing under them when you have those early fish that are very surface-oriented. They're not right hugging bottom, but, you know, they're near bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and there's some arguments, you know, pro and con, but that's the rough way I look at it. And so by telling this one guy just to, cast swing step cast swing step he covered water you know now maybe he passed a few fish that if he'd worked on he might got more but he was looking for the fish that was going to come to the surface right and and he boiled a couple fish he still was batting 75 percent because he was he was three for four on the fish that took Mm -hmm. and and every fish that took ripped out line because it was already very aggressively chasing the fly so when he got the take the fish was already moving whereas deep fish you know often they take and stop and kind of get that head shake before they wake up. Just all kinds of things. Well, nobody else was out fishing them. But then he went and floated in the canyon, where it's a lot of deep pools. And the guy he went with, oh, no, take that off, put on this, and put on a big dredgy tip and a big fly. And he fished for a day and a half. And he did catch a few fish. Um, didn't do worse, didn't do better. And then I had him again on the last day. But now he wants to fish that heavy stuff. And he's hitting himself, and he's he's complaining about it. He's hanging up on bottom every ten steps. Mark, why are you doing that? Well, this is. I think it's more effective. He was convinced it was more effective. But why? Because bigger's better. I don't know. Bigger's better, and because he'd been in the lower canyon in the deep water, that maybe was intimidating, and so this is what he went with. But eventually, we put on the small fly and the floating line again, and he caught a couple more before he had to go. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Listen, it's not that bad, but what do you prefer to do?" Fight your cast, and and we weren't. Oh, is that bottom? Oh, oh is that the fish? Because you know, you're deep, or would you prefer to throw a nice easy casting rig? And when you get a take, you know it. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously that. And of course, dry fly fishing. If you can do anything, if you can catch a fish on a dry fly, why are you tickling them with a giant wet fly? Yeah, you know, in a sense. Now, as a new guy, I get it. But for an experienced guy, obviously, you know, that's why they look for those fish, and that's why places that have good dry fly opportunities are so popular. But mm-hmm. It just astounded me that people, you know, were less interested in challenging themselves or 
and, and more interested in just getting a bunch to then brag about. Right. You know, it's like, did you remember the sixth and seventh fish when you got that ten fish day? You know, because you're just jabbing them and horsing them in and getting another one. And, you know, but to each their own. I mean, I don't want to come off as like a snob. It just surprises me that that's, you know, what people view as a successful day. And so I think anglers challenging themselves, this gets back to the, to the, to the more finesse lines and the longer bellies. And, you know, there's a bit of a revival there because people find it's a bit more of a challenge. You know, I I like to pick on my buddies who, are, who who get so wrapped up in competition and distance, but not because I don't think it's a great thing to do. I just think when they do it to the point that it distracts them from everything else, in in their fishing, you know, in catching fish, mm-hmm. those are the guys that next thing you know they're always casting as far as they can, because really, are you out fishing? Or are you practicing your casting? Right. You know, and and it's just a buddy thing that we do, but. Um, I think all those things, you know, can't hurt because they all build the sport. But just to watch people fish and different people fish, you know, and then I go back to the Jerry Wintels and watching him fish was always amazing because he'd barely do anything. He'd run down the river. He'd fish from 10 in the afternoon or 10 in the morning till about 3. Then he'd go home for early supper. Wouldn't come back out. And every day he had three or four or five. His magical gig was that he covered water. He- Close. Cast consistent. short, consistent, mended, stepped, swung it to the bank, cast again. He he walked his swing a lot. Mm-hmm. So a lot of guys will swing with their feet planted. He would cast, mend, and take about four steps while his fly was settling. Then he'd plant his feet, and then he'd bring the fly around to the beach. So if you do that, you'll see that the first couple steps, the fly is sinking. But the second couple steps, it's starting to come tight. It's starting to come around, but it's doing so at a much slower rate because you're moving. In the zone. Because yeah. you're moving with That's it. That's I do that. And then the he would swing his rod to the beach and just lay it right across the shore. He couldn't see the takes. He just wait for the pull. Right. And and he'd be down the run in twenty minutes. Everybody else would spend hours, half micro stepping, not realizing that he would rather go to the top and go through again and go through again, and go, okay, three passes, three fish, I'm going home. Well, especially in the lower game, and those fish are Yeah, and the fish there. are coming, and that's where, 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 you know, the benefit of crazy, aggressive fish. Right. But there'd be all kinds of guys there who can't figure it out. Right. They're like, that guy caught four fish behind me. And they'd be standing in one spot with 12 feet of T14 and a three-inch string leech mm-hmm. flogging. And they get all pissed off that Jerry would be bearing down on them, and they'd back out and let him go through, and then go back in, and then he'd go get one. And he'd like, well... Have you learned anything from observing him, or are you just complaining? You know, observation is you know a very key part of learning, and a lot of people don't do that. They're so busy wrapped up in what they're doing, they're not paying attention to what's going on, right? Do you and, think? See, that's a, that's funny to hear you say that because for me, I mean, a lot of my fishing, I learned so much by observing. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we're losing that these days because people feel like they can just fast track and go on the internet and find it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think that... Because you, did you learn by observing people? I learned about going. I learned about going and observing, and I read about it, and read about it, and read about it. And I didn't have the internet to learn on the day. We had a few videos, DVDs, Lanny Waller DVD, and a few others um, that were half entertainment, but have some knowledge. Um, like I said, I learned a ton from gear fishing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no matter what anybody says, the real best fly fishermen in our in our history... They like all start. Fishermen. They all started Absolutely. drowning worms. I mean, Haig Brown was swinging Devon minnows through the Campbell long before he was swinging flies, right? And and learning how waters flow and and where fish lay and why and and therefore altering your presentation with a fly to catch that fish is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so 
watching all that observation and learning was how we figured it out. And to go somewhere and to sort of look about and observe it was a huge part of trout fishing on the bow. You'd never run out in the run. You'd sneak in and you'd look and you'd see for fish rising or some, you know, snouts and you'd just look around and you took a little while to observe the water and develop a strategy. Mm-hmm. Now people just sort of, you know, particularly steal it. They kind of blunder out in the water, start flailing. Um, I think on the, on the, on the retail side, retailers are expected to provide a different level of service than they used to in that people expect to be told where to go, where to stand, how far do I cast. I mean, we used to joke in the old days about maps. You know, we I've drawn a million maps for people. No, on, I've been, I remember when I was younger going into the shops and they would have photocopied maps drawn up. Yeah, oh yeah. Maps of, of places, not necessarily, you know, we used to joke of cast near the rock with the moss on it. That right. was always the joke. But enough to try to give people that next level of service. And of course, if a guy went there, caught fish, came back you were a hero now he was your loyal customer and and it, and but as it escalated that became the level of what people expected and then my old business partner we had a huge roar about because he expected staff just to give up their favorite spots uh. to customers and um remember one staff member refused to do it he said i'm not going to tell him exactly where to go I'm, I'm telling him there's fish there here's what to use go figure it out mm-hmm. but no he was expected to you know to, to to sell out the farm for this guy's success and his and his dollars and he refused to do it he okay. says i don't need it that bad he says i think i've given him more than i ever had to figure it out yeah you know and and that was a difference of opinion on on a level of service and i think that trying to find a happy medium I mean, we all know the internet's ruined a lot of fishing spots. Mm-hmm. How do you find that happy medium? You know? I think you're doing them a disservice by telling them where to go. Yeah, well, they don't learn anything on their own. No, and it's yeah. not as, I mean, think about the satisfaction you get when you figure it out on your own. Oh, yeah. Coming up, I pick Scott's brain about more steelhead techniques, and I even ask him why he fishes eggs on occasion. Dun, dun, dun. Um, I would like to fire out some things at you that I've either observed you do or have heard that you do. And just want you to give me your input real quick. Okay. One, do you like to let your fly reach the dangle and then strip and then step? Or do you like to let it reach the dangle and then step and then strip? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, neither. What I what I always advocate my guests to do is to cast, step. Okay, good, yeah. Cast men, cast, take a couple steps when your cast's out there. Just a couple, I'm not telling you to take five. Couple steps, get your foot, let the fly come around, and as the fly comes to a stop, you know, have a hang down, strip it in, cast it again, and then, and then step, step again. And because in floating line fishing, it's not half as important, but in sink, sunk line fishing, if you step when your fly's hanging below you, you hang it in the rocks over and over because it's, it's swung into not only shallow water, but also soft, soft moving water, mm-hmm. and it sinks. Now, what I've learned from that is some people seem incapable of doing that it's just too much going on for them and then they still take steps at the end yeah because i'm like you i teach people to do the same yeah. thing i have them hold the rod slightly upstream so that they can keep it yeah. in the zone and then after they've already taken their two steps they reach the dangle they take four more steps yeah. and now they're at the end of the run and it's yeah, they run out of water ten minutes. and you know and and if you are able to draw a grid on how they went down the water for every cast and like photographed them from a high bank and then redrew it all just for a conversational sake, to show them how, when they do things like that, they might miss, you know, a five or ten foot stretch of water. And you and I both know 
certain stretches of water, that could be where the fish are. And and if you're not efficiently covering the whole thing, and, and you know, then there's a greater chance for missing water. Mm-hmm. Same reason is don't stand in one spot for too long. Also, if you're fishing for, you know, Chinooks and deep, heavy water, you take a couple steps as your fly settling, you are much deeper than if you... You could feed line, arguably, too, because that allows your fly to settle. But I've always found that I prefer to cast with my whole line out, right to my reel, mend, take a couple steps. Everything's tight, so if I get a grab while I'm stepping, everything's tight, there's no slack. I'm not throwing mends in where there's slack, which might rob me of feeling that. And, and... And I found that even in deep holes where I've actually, as the fly is swinging, I'm still trying to move with it to get it as slow and deep as I have to. Do you think that there's a bad taste in people's mouths these days about nymphing? Oh, absolutely. There's a whole divisive thing about, you know, guys that, the Olympic Peninsula has seen it. You know, when the other Puget Sound rivers took a beating and got closed down, um, you know, a lot of those guys went out to the peninsula to fish. They had a huge influx in pressure. A lot of guys who wanted to steelhead fish that really had the bug that were trout guides in Montana. They all went out there, and the strike indicator rig is super effective. But I'm talking about nymphing without an indicator. Oh, I well, believe that nymphing has a bad rep because of the indicator. indicator. Oh, absolutely. But what about the classics, the teenies and the Maxwells and, and the people who knew how to nymph and do it without using an indicator? When Jim Teeny's videos came out, you know, one of the big things that we saw was, um, you know, he had that, uh, um, I spot him, I got him. At the time... I have that video. Yeah, we were like, hmm. And then, and then later, we were kind of like, oh, now do you spot him, you got him, or you spot him, you line him? Because people started to think that, you know, if you're good with clear water and line control, you'd feed that thing right into its mouth. And because it was a small, the teeny nymph, a small drab fly, not taken away from Jim Teeny, you know, great, great fisherman, a small drab fly that wouldn't spook the fish, you know, that it's, it's arguable that, that does it. And with the, with the, the, the blow up of sockeye salmon fishing up in Alaska with the, the lining rigs and the Fraser River lining rigs, a lot of people started to realize, hmm, you know, why do you go to the Veta River and bottom bounce with a five foot leader? and catch way more fish than a guy bottom bouncing with a one-foot leader. Well, it's not because the fish are spooky. It's because you can align them better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, I think there's that aspect. But I think, uh, you know, Maxwell fished a stonefly nymph that he fished on a floating line. It was weighted, and he basically dead drifted. Um, I know some uh, other guys used to go up there years ago and fish the same way, never used an indicator. But I think, you know, in race, more recent years of big indicators that you just mend to the indicator. And the indicator is so big and so buoyant that when the fish takes the fly, the resistance of trying to pull that indicator down sets the hook. you know. And then they've got a glow bug with a, a stone fly with the hook bent closed. and you know, It's very effective. But people start to look at that and go, that's not really... you know. And you get into that whole argument of, is that fly fishing? Which is an age-old argument about a lot of different aspects of fishing. You know... Uh, from the spoon fly for redfish, you know, that they used to make out of mylar. That's not a fly. Well, kind of it is. Is it any different than a prom dress, which is just a bunch of mylar? The difference is you've put epoxy on one and created a, 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 a body that wiggles. I think that's creativity myself. Okay, you're fishing a running, running line, line to a skagit line, throwing men's. Do you 
and again, I'm gonna, I'll leave my own personal opinion out of it. Mm-hmm. Do you mend so that your Skagit line is also moved or, or is, is placed in a different position? Or do you only move your running line so that it doesn't drag the positioning of your Skagit line? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Um, I usually mend running line. I don't, I don't expect to mend a Skagit. I mean, half the time it's difficult to mend a Skagit. Um, I, what I find with people, the problem with running lines, particularly fine ones and fat lines, is that if a person casts too far upstream, it, it's an impossible problem to fix, which is another gripe of the longer-bellied guys comparing themselves to the short bellies. Um, what I prefer to do is try to get the guy, the caster, situated so that when their line lands on the water, it's already a, a decent downstream angle. And really all they have to do is just lift that running line a little bit upstream and let it go. Mm-hmm. You know. And I wrote a piece a couple of years ago for uh, the Daniki blog about mending because I used to work with Richard Powell, who's the R- Reverend Ritchie. He's a legend on the Bulkley. And he would never mend. And he was adamant about never mend no matter what. And I was like, well, no, that's a broad statement. I mean, there's you can... Ed Ward is not a big mender if you let the line land correctly, if I understand correctly. But if you throw line up and across and you've got complex currents, you know, then that's different. But if you throw the line the right way, you might not have to mend. And and just those various changes. And what would happen is I'd have people that had been with him the day before and I would put them in the spot and I'd look over and they weren't, they were just throwing it across the current just letting it rip. And I'm like, oh, you should lift your line and mend that other way and slow that fly down. Oh no, we were told not to. And it was, it was told in a matter of like, thou shall never, like it is forbidden. And I thought, well, wait a second, there's a time and place for everything, you know, but I think every circumstance requires a different approach. I wouldn't paint it with such a broad brush. Yeah. But with monofilament running lines and heads, you can't expect to move the head. I mean, you kind of can. I don't think there's an advantage. I, I think, tell people it's like when you're center pinning, you're just lifting up your monofilament and you're adjusting a 26-foot long dink float. Is really yeah, what yeah, doing. yeah, exactly. And, and you know, um, in softer water, I mean, I remember when we used to go to the Thompson and truly grease line, and people didn't understand it. They thought grease lining just meant a floating line. I go, no, you read the book. True grease lining is to present the fly, you know, perpendicular, like parallel to the fish, so it's a side profile, and the fish is looking at, you know, a side profile of the fly for as long as you can delay it, and then at the last second it kicks. It's a science. Arthur Wood's book changed my life. Oh, it's a total science, and and it's kind of fun, mm-hmm. but it requires certain types of water, too. If the water's too fast, it doesn't work. You need that nice, Canal even speed. sort of Yeah, water. when you can, like, wade, and you're mending downstream more than you're mending upstream. Mm-hmm. But I remember the first Thompson field I ever got on a true grease line rig at Rennie's Rock there. It it was not a life-changing moment, but it was a big moment for an okay average fish because I, I went into the spot with a set formula of the, I'm going to fish this little grease line, black spay fly, parallel, and I, and I took me 10 casts before I felt it was... And I kept working on the run, and I was doing it the way the book said, and all of a sudden that I just saw my whole line just start shooting up river floating line, yeah. 10 feet of water, you knew it wasn't bottom. No. And just remember grabbing on the line and the fish came out of the water, 15 pounds or something, tumbling around. And it was hooked right in the scissors. I had to get pliers to get the little barbless hook out. 
And the whole moment to me was, oh, cool. I've cut hundreds of steelhead, you know, with a floating line, mending upstream more of the traditional hung fly technique. But um, that old grease line thing, you know, is great. And I have a bunch of guests that they always say, I want a grease line. And I always say, you mean you want a floating line fish? Yeah, that's... Well, yeah, grease line. I go, that's no, not, it's that's not, not grease lining. lining. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move to the next question. Okay. River blows out and it's chocolate milk, but you're going fishing anyway. Do you put on a super heavy sink tip and get mm. down? Or do you stay really light and let it swing all the way to the beach? Shore? Yeah. You know, I've seen both work. And uh, I remember that one year on the Dean when it super blew out and uh, Simon Gosworth and uh, Simon whipped out 20 feet of T20. He did. And he caw a fish or two and all of a sudden everybody, everybody went, yeah, and they were with our camp. Yeah. And so they, imagine guiding that, trying oh. to explain, well, you know, kindly. Uh it's Simon Gosworth. Yeah. And twenty feet of T twenty on Simon Gosworth's a little bit different than it yeah. is on you guys. You guys for throwing it. And and yet at the same time, you know, I've seen where the river blows out and we fish some shallow beach with a an intermediate or a type three and a huge fly, unweighted right on the beach, 20-foot casts, and the fish are all in the shallows. Within reason. Like, water bumps up, it takes a little while for them to reorient. But, the, you know, the next day. What about people who say that you're snagging? I get that lots. I've got a yeah. video on YouTube. and I mean, you and I both know when you're fishing for Chinook on the Dean, they're super aggressive. We've seen fish almost beach themselves chasing flies. Oh, yeah. And I've had criticism of, oh, well, you must be snagging yeah. the fish. Especially when it's a tube fly and, and they see the tube in one section hook of the fish's mouth and look hook on the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think that when a fish can only see literally mere inches in front of its nose, and all of a sudden there's a five or six inch giant, you know, chartreuse and green or chartreuse and blue, you know, Chinook type of fly with a hook hanging off its ass end like a tube fly or an intruder style fly, and the fish grabs it. He's biting it like a dog eating a wiener. You know, it's right across his mouth. And, of course, the hook's on either side. And in and you're in pretty illustrious company getting that criticism because Ed Ward got hammered years ago for a picture that was on Wild Salmon and Steelhead Mag when it was that big, beautiful coffee table book that Tom Perrell first was publishing. He had a picture of a big Skagit doe, and the intruder had slid down his leader, and the fly was on the outside of the other lip. And all these people were accusing him of of snagging. And of course, guys like Dick Hogan and O'Donnell and all those guys that knew Ed Ward very well said, you're no. kidding, right? Yeah. You know who you're talking to. Like, he doesn't, you know, you don't understand that sometimes the fish have done it. And, uh, you know, and that was a decade ago, and I've probably had a dozen or two dozen fish that we've landed hooked outside in like that. When I worked in the ocean and we're fishing with bait, cut plug herring with two hooks in it, we hook fish in the cheek all the time because of the way they come up and, and slash at the bait it just happens. You're fishing. You're using a hook in the water. You're not always going to hook them in the perfect spot. Right. And I think for people to be critical and judgmental about it just goes to show you how inexperienced they are. So there's not any sort of um, certainty. So if I see, if you see a fly in a fish's maxillary right uh-huh. in the corner, mm-hmm. do you think that that's automatically a guaranteed floss? Oh, no, no. I, I mean, like yeah, I said, I've I mean, seen a dry fly that yeah. I've actually seen the steelhead come up and take be hooked in the corner, so yeah. I have my own opinion yeah. on it. But yeah, on the out, you mean about, like, outside in? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, and I, no, I think it's just the nature of, of, of the flies we use now, all these tube flies and intruders with the hook way in the back. Um, it's, you know, if you were talking about a traditional down 
down hook, up eye salmon hook, like an old skunk or something, you know, and, the, and you're hooking all these fish in, and they're hooked always like that on the outside, and, and it happens more than once in a short period of time, mm-hmm. you can start asking yourself, what am I doing here? And if you're talking about a bunch of salmon laying in a run that almost you could think they're getting ready to spawn, and yeah. guys are hooking them that way, I absolutely think they're lying. Yeah, that's totally different. But the fisheries we fish in, where these are fresh migrating fish, they're not stalling, they're not holding. Exactly. That's what I've tried explaining. Like People don't believe me that I've had guests catch Chinooks on dry flies in the Dean yeah. more than once. Think him right up and ate it, and if you didn't see it happen, you would have, you would have cried liar. Mm-hmm. And the guy shows you, and you let's see it, and they go, "Well, a chinook spends a freshwater period just like a steelhead. He can imprint on that. Maybe not as long in the river as a steelhead to have such a strong imprint, but it doesn't mean he's not going to remember that, right? We see the par do that. Yeah, you in see the river. you see par chasing dry flies all the time. But we see them chasing. Yeah. And a chinook flies. par in a river is a really aggressive critter. If you put a Chinook par in a pool with a bunch of steelhead par and coho par, mm-hmm. he's the dominant one. He's in the best fishing spot and he's the strongest fish. But he also goes to the ocean sooner, right. you know, and so therefore has little different, you know, uh, uh, impulses as far as how he reacts. Right. Do you find that fish are more prone to biting when the water is rising or dropping? Dropping. Yeah, rising water's never been a very... The only river I've ever fished where rising water seemed to make fish move and we still caught the snot out of them was the Gold River in Vancouver Island. I wonder why that is. I don't know either. It's A it's, tidal base, maybe? It's renowned for being a flashy river, and when it's high, the fish are on fire and you just fish everywhere. And rising water, I've, I've just been slaying them there, just one after another. Now, this is back in the day gear fishing, but the fish were still bitey. And, uh, you know, your float... Was it a low year, though? And then it... Well, the water's been down, and so the fish had probably been holed up. You know, right. and then the so water... they were pushing desperately. The water's pumped up, and they started pushing. But if you look at any of the studies of fish movement and radio tagging, that when fish... When water's rising and getting dirty, fish typically hold their ground. Mm-hmm. They don't start to move until water starts to crest, and then starts to drop, and then they move. And they've... Radio tagging doesn't lie. You know, the damn thing moves, right? Um, but I've certainly seen fish move in dirty water, yeah. but... By and large, if I'm at the river and I see it rising and it's full of leaves and debris and it's getting colored, I'm usually advocating to pull the pin. Yeah, I'm Tim like, Horton's uh, time. Tim Horton, guys, it, this is not working out for us. Let's regroup. Tim Horton's time, or it'd be beer time. Yeah, so, I like both those times. Yeah, both those times. Yeah. One and a half more questions. Swinging eggs. Mm. Ah, talk to me about swinging yeah, eggs. Yeah, I've done it. Uh, I don't want to admit to it. But you know, but, but, but yep. people fish egg sucking leeches. Absolutely. And, they, and don't, they don't get any grief. So let's talk about swinging eggs, because I've given you grief about swinging eggs. Oh, yeah. And then put on an egg-sucking leash. Yeah, and caught fish. You know, and, and I think two things. I think uh, when you when you tear it down to the most bare, bare of facts, particularly with steelhead uh, that are that are migrating and returning to rivers where salmon also exist in big numbers... But there's no doubt that in their juvenile upbringing that the egg is a huge role. So it's the flesh fly, you know, flesh when they're they're uh, rearing. So flesh and eggs and insects. We have no problem representing insects with our flies. You know, drab patterns and Lady Caroline-y things that, you know, look buggy. Um, we have no problems with flesh flies, you know, which could be popsicle marabou stuff. But when it comes to an egg, which is a key part of a fish's diet for a part of its life, it's sort of looked down upon. And, and, but, you know, I've seen, particularly in the Bulkley, uh, I've seen, and the Thompson, where those fish, they're so keyed in on that thing, 
It's like a green drake hatch on the Henry's fork. If you don't have the right presentation, you're not getting any success. And I've seen the fish come five feet across the bottom to crush a little egg bouncing along the bottom because they're so in the zone. And I think with an egg-sucking leech, or my favorite too, the egg-shitting leech, which is where you basically put a glow bug behind a black tube fly, and you put that thing through there, and they key in on that color. I mean, it makes a difference. A green butt skunk or an orange butt skunk, same thing. Just that little flash of color when they're really in that zone. You know, um, my complaint about eggs for a long time was that the fish would eat them, and you'd get a lot of fish in the gullet. Okay. Really bad. And then... uh, We've changed. We started tying a lot of glow bugs on almost a circle hook or like a 2457, 2487 Tiemco style scud hooks. Where the, it's very hard to hook the fish in the tongue because of the shape of the hook. Mm-hmm. Um, or we've gone completely away from, from glow bugs because of that concern to pegged beads in the same manner that the Alaskans came up with it. Because you, you don't hook the fish deep. They don't, uh, they have a hard time swallowing it. The hook is pegged away from the fish. You're not snagging them. It's all in an effort to, to minimize the fish inhaling it. And the bead, it seems harder for the fish to inhale. A glow bug is a soft, it's fabric, and they can just wolf it down. And so, uh, of course, the guys I work with them, uh, have some Alaska experience, so out comes the bead. you know. And we joke about it, and we don't like to do it. It's kind of... You know, I used to make this terrible analogy, but I'll, I'll say it. It's like taking the fat girl home from the party. It felt good. At, <laughs> felt good. It felt good at the time, but you oh, don't. But you, God. don't God. you don't tell your friends. <laughs> but you know that it, that was the reality. And so when you but see, why not just fish an indicator then if you're going to fish eggs? Well, that's that's the we draw the line at indicators. Why? <laughs> because we're being snobby. But, uh, what's the, what's well, the because we discovered that if if the fish are on the bead, or as I put it, they got egg on the brain. If you put a bead or a, you, all. you put all that stuff together, you put it on a short tip, you know, a mo tips are awesome for this because mm-hmm. it's a short, heavy tip on a short leader, and you throw it across, mend it, and almost high stick it and swing it through there so it's still a swinging fly almost, you hammer them, and you get one after another, after another, after another. They're not as keyed in on the free-floating, free-drifting, bouncing egg as we think they are. You know, they'll take a sort of a swung glow bug, it's still enough for them, and it still catches enough that I draw the line there. Um, we don't get into indicators and clamping on split shot. You know, on the Bulkley, that you, you run into legalities because there are areas there where you, you can't do that. But um, and in necessity, I mean, it works good enough. And when the fisher got that egg on the brain, it's only for about a week. We find it's right after the pinks have been really digging and spawning, and the chinooks are spawning, that the fish line up into those areas. They're on it, and then the spawn's over. And the fish start migrating out of those areas, and they go back to acting like regular steelhead. Mm-hmm. So it is a small window. And I have seen that in extreme cold snaps, or late season, like years ago with you and I and Jen Smalley, and, you know, remember that year, and we were... Oh, yeah. Jen had never caught a steelhead before, and she caught like 10 in a day on a glow bug. And she thought it was the greatest oh, thing right. ever. that's right. You put on a glow bug. I refuse. Yeah, and everybody was looking down their nose at her, and she's like, what? I caught that's 10... I caught, I caught my first 10 steelhead today... Why is it a problem? I caught him swinging. I caught him on one of those little orange things. Okay. And everybody was looking down their nose at her. And I explained to her, I go, don't worry about it. You know, you know, if you'd set an egg-sucking leech, it probably would have had less sting to it. 
But like, even even like that, Scott... I, and, and I was doing it, so they were all looking at me like... I remember Ew. when you guys got back to the lodge. Yeah. And I even pulled Smalley aside. Actually, I had dinner with mm. her right after yeah, I yeah. And I, I remember pulling her aside being like, now listen, <laughs> let's put you back on on like a black leech or something. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what happened. So I felt like a hypocrite, mm. and I, I really limited my usage of mm. egg-sucking leeches. Mm. And then it just hit me... Uh, this year, actually. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I pulled out one of my old traditional Scottish patterns, and I noticed that there was a small little bit of seal dubbing right on the front of it. So I was I was doing actually really well fishing this old traditional mm-hmm. fly called Dallas, and as I was taking it out of the fish's mouth, I realized, wait a second, this dubbing, this little bit of dubbing on the front, it's an egg sucking shit, yeah. I'm fishing a hundred year old egg sucking leech, yeah, yeah. and I just throw my hands up in the air. You know, the the red-butted skunk, the green-butted skunk. I mean, all these flies, freight trains, all these flies that had these the little blast of color in the in the tag, and then a dark body, right? And and to to get a fish to take, and I think that has a bearing on it. Another interesting thing I noticed is if you ever see an October caddis pupa in the water, its abdomen is very pale orange as it rises to you know whether it's under the water, and then the front of it. It's it the head and the thorax and everything of the natural insects very dark, and when it's a pupa, the legs and everything hang below the body, so it's basically it's a very dark in the front, orange in the back. What's a very good fly? The orange butted spade. What's it look like in the water? Orange butt, black front. You fish it on the surface film. You riffle hitch it. You know, you know. So trying to think of well, it's totally impressionistic, but what is this thing representing mm-hmm. to the fish? And if you look at places with massive hatches of October caddis. You know, that's like the egg and like stoneflies and other things. That all has a, a bearing on the fish's uh, uh, juvenile history. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it triggers something when they see it. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? Way deep cast far. Or ankle deep and 20 feet. It's one or the other. Oh. <laughs> you tell people that all the time. You know, get in the water and throw for the fences or don't get in the water and, and, and fish your feet. But... uh no, I, I think we could do several of these things and always cover very interesting, vast topics without repeating ourselves. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week as I sit down to learn more about George Cook at his home in Auburn, Washington. <laughs>